This is They Create Worlds, episode 131, Sir Clive of ZX. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we will be bringing you our exposition on the ZX and Sir Clive, who has not officially become Sir Clive yet, because we haven't got there in the narrative. But we are sitting here with bated breath to learn from Alex exactly when Clive becomes Sir Clive. Presumably after he makes the computer. But no one knows when that is, except for professional historians, like Alex. Uh, yes, sure. He was knighted in 1983. There you have it. Well, that was anticlimactic. I hope that was worth it. I come up with these entertaining intros. He just drops the ball when I throw it at him. (laughs) But we're not really here to talk about Sir Clive's knighthood, as personally impressive as that is. We are here to talk about how, after leaving his original company, Sinclair Radionics, in near disgrace and financial ruin, he landed at his lifeboat organization, Science of Cambridge, and from there would single-handedly create a large and vibrant British computer game industry that he absolutely wanted nothing whatsoever to do with. What's really interesting is, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, is he's been in consumer electronics effectively for the British people his entire adult life, Mm -hmm. pretty much since the age of 18. He's been looking at doing all of this miniaturization more efficient on the cutting edge, and a lot of times these things fail because... He cuts so many corners. Right. However, it does push that envelope forward. It really makes it so that other companies go, you know, let's do what he's doing, except charge a little bit more and up that quality a little bit. We should be (laughs) A-OK. Sure. Then after he and the NEB have a falling out, and he pretty much through his act of prescience goes off to... His lifeboat company there, Science of Cambridge, which then becomes Sinclair Research, which then becomes Sinclair Computers and all this other fun stuff. (laughs) Too many renamings with him. It remains uh, Sinclair Research. In fact, still exists today as Sinclair Research is still around. But right, he definitely gets more and more involved in that computer business. But before we get started on all of this crazy Sinclair stuff, one thing I did want to mention is that... I had the privilege of being on another podcast recently. (gasps) You traitor! (laughs) Don't worry, I put in a good word for you, too. Oh, okay, then. (laughs) The Video Game History Hour is a relatively new podcast, weekly podcast, that is done by Frank Cifaldi and Kelsey Lewin, who are the co-directors of the Video Game History Foundation. The Video Game History Foundation is a wonderful, wonderful organization. It's a nonprofit that is dedicated to preserving all aspects of video game history. 
They have a large library of magazines and trade publications, physical library, physical copies, that is largely based on Frank Cifaldi's own impressive collection of magazines that he has built over the years. But, of course, they are buying and augmenting from there. They are uh, helping to preserve source code when and where they can find it. Cifaldi was for many years a journalist in the video game industry, so he has a lot of contacts in that world. They do a lot of great work. They save a lot of things. They promote the saving of a lot of things. They're a truly exceptional organization that I consider myself to be a supporter of. They've started the Video Game History Hour as a weekly podcast where every week they talk to somebody who has a story to tell within video game history. They like to bring on not so much the people that were in the industry itself, though they sometimes do. They had Gary Kitchen on recently. But they talk to people that are doing research in video games and are making efforts to preserve video game history to help promote their work more widely and just show what great things are happening in trying to preserve the history of this wonderful industry. We'll put their podcast in the show notes, Video Game History Hour. I urge you all to check it out, not just my episode uh, where I promote our podcast here and our book while talking about the video game crash of 82, 83, 84, which we've covered significantly on this show as well. But I encourage you to give a listen to all of their episodes and just see all the wonderful stuff going on in this field. I listened to the episode in question, and Alex is right. They do a very good production value. They provide a lot of interesting insight and a different perspective to things. So if you enjoy what we do here, they're certainly worth giving a listen to and listening to the perspective that they provide. Hearing more just always provides more knowledge about everything we love about video games. Absolutely. Now, where were we? Oh, yes, we were talking about Sir Clive Sinclair, who hasn't become Sir Clive yet. He is on this lifeboat, and he has absolutely no interest in dealing with computers. You know, he never really wanted to be there. We kind of touched base on this at the end of the last episode when we did bring up the MK14, which was the first computer. He was really still focused on television. He felt television was the future where he could make the difference, and he was obsessed with his flat-screen television and not a 65-inch flat-screen television. Because remember, if there's only one thing you took away from our episode last time about Sir Clive Sinclair, it's that he always wants to make things smaller and smaller and smaller. He wants to make a portable like really portable, like the size of a large transistor radio, flat screen television. This is his vision. This is what is going to change the world. Well, he starts with that little two-inch portable TV thing he made. Right, and that one is fairly portable, but it's still fairly bulky. It's still not quite transistor radio size because it still has a big bulky tube in there. You can only get the tubes so small, even when you're doing special stuff with them. He wants to get the full portable experience, and that's where his mind is, and that's what he spent all his time on. And even though he had to ditch Sinclair Radionics and the NEB sold off the television portion of that uh, Benetone, you know, the products that were already on the market, his R&D focus, even as he comes to Science of Cambridge, is still on televisions. Then the MK14 sells tens of thousands of units. This little, dinky, 
practically a calculator, but technically a computer. MK14 sells tens of thousands of units. That just makes him stop and be like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe these little computer things are not really worth my time and energy, but they're making money. I like money. I need money. For all that research I'm doing into how to make better flat panel screens. Exactly. So then he's like, okay, I'm going to get into the computer business, but I'm not going to like it. This leads to a very big falling out between Clive Sinclair and his number one technical guy, the person that founded Science of Cambridge on his behalf and co-designed the MK14 computer, Chris Curry. Chris Curry, after the MK14, is fully committed to this idea of doing computers, and he wants to do a technologically impressive product that really pushes the market forward. Does he want it to be affordable? Sure, but he's not quite so obsessive as Sir Clive is in that he doesn't need it to be as cheap as absolutely possible. If we have to cut corners to get there, we have to cut corners to get there. He wants to do something that's impressive and pushes the market forward, and Clive basically says, no, we're not doing that. This is just for the cash, and we're going to make something cheap. We're going to make something that is just a little kind of my first computer, an instructional thing to learn how to program. We're going to sell a bunch of units, and then we're going to get back to our real work. Well, this leads to a complete rift between these two gentlemen. Chris Curry goes off to found Acorn with his good friend who we mentioned, uh, who we may or may not have mentioned briefly last episode, Herman Hauser, who is at the University of Cambridge. And they go off together and they found Acorn computers. As we did allude to briefly in the last episode, the Acorn is the A in ARM processor, which is short for Acorn Risk Machine. This uh, starts an epic rivalry, which is very nicely captured in the uh, BBC movie Micromen, which talks about the rivalry in computers between Clive Sinclair and Chris Curry, uh, who is played by Martin Freeman of The Office and Sherlock fame, and is a pretty accurate depiction of events. They amp some things up to dramatize it. Every time you think that what they're showing on screen is not true, you look it up and it's true. You'll say to yourself... They couldn't have possibly gone to a pub after a trade show, Clive Sinclair and Christopher Curry, and gotten into a fist fight in a pub. That is so ridiculous and is just extra stupid drama to make their marketing fight feel more physical. And it's like, no, no, that happened. They really got into a fist fight in a British pub after a trade show. That happened. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about this kind of epic rivalry between these two. If, if you're interested in seeing more in a dramatized form, I can definitely recommend Micromen. But I just wanted to kind of get Chris Curry out of the picture. And, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't amicable. <laughs> At this point, of course, Clive is able to bring in some of his other people from Sinclair Radionics that are willing to join him at Science of Cambridge. He's reunited with Jim Westwood, who we may recall from last episode was his other principal electronics designer, his other principal kit designer alongside Chris Curry and has been with him longer. Jim Westwood is responsible for a lot of the early products. He wasn't responsible for the MK14 computer because, of course, he wasn't over at Science of Cambridge. He was still at Sinclair Radionics. But now he's here 
and he will be designing the next computer. That computer is going to be the ZX80. The ZX80 is a step up from the MK14 in that it is a more proper computer feeling thing. It has a mostly real keyboard. Now, it's a membrane keyboard. It's not even a chiclet membrane keyboard with individually defined keys. It is a true membrane keyboard where you have just one sheet of plastic over top of it, and then there are little bumps where the switches are. You press down on that plastic onto that switch to type something like some of the uh, electronics children's toys of the early 1980s. It's an actual keyboard, unlike the MK14, which was basically a calculator pad. It wasn't a full keyboard. It hooks up to a television. You can hook it up to a television to do stuff. It only has black and white graphics, but that's better than an LED readout. It outputs actual video. If you want to make it really extra challenging, you might as well put it on that little two-inch screen he put out. (laughs) Right. It is powered by a Z80 processor. That's where the Z in, or the Z in ZX80 comes from. It's powered by the Z80, which is definitely one of the more popular and more capable 8-bit processors on the market. The 80 comes from the year it is released, 1980. And then the X is there because, you know, it just looks cool. So ZX80, that's how you get that. It is meant to be a tutor computer. It is really meant to teach a person programming. It's definitely not meant to do word processing. It's not meant to balance your checkpoint. It's not even really meant to play games necessarily. It's really meant to make your own simple programs. It's an educational machine. So it does have a version of BASIC built into ROM. It's a fairly limited version of BASIC because the ROM is only 4K. It was created by a company called Nine Tiles, which was nearby, not Microsoft. It was considered, I think, a pretty good BASIC considering the limitations. When you have only 4K of ROM, size matters more than efficiency. Getting it all to fit in ROM was more important than making sure that it executed instructions in the most efficient manner possible. It only had 1K of RAM, and that's period. It didn't have separate video RAM. It didn't have a separate scratch pad or cache somewhere where you could sneak in a few other operations. There was exactly 1K of RAM for everything. Well, at least we've gotten into the kilobyte territory as opposed to just bytes, if just barely. However, it was literally not possible for this computer to process a keyboard input and draw the screen at the same time. Oh, yes. The famous, I press a button, the screen goes blank. Oh, we have updated. Press the button, screen goes blank. Oh, we've updated again. You could get a memory expansion pack that plugged into the back of it. It was uh, The connectors were a bit dodgy. It could be jostled loose very easily. But you could get a RAM expansion pack to get that up to 16K, which is a mite bit better. But the base, the base was 1K. In order to get this thing to market fairly quickly, 
They used entirely off-the-shelf parts. It was not the most efficiently designed machine. It had the Z80, and it had a total of 21 chips in it. Just uh, this chip, that chip, the other chip that was just off-the-shelf components. Nothing custom designed, nothing custom built. As a result, it was very cheap, but not quite as cheap as it could have been. But still, it was only 100 pounds for a fully assembled ZX80. 80 pounds if you wanted to buy it as a kit and make it yourself. 100 pounds is actually a very good price for a fully operational computer. It may not be fancy. The keyboard may be a mess. The screen may not update. It has no sound. It's black and white. But it is a fully working computer with built-in basic for 100 pounds. Good value, I think, there. You... You get your educational thing. It's not perfect, but back then, 100 pounds would be what, U.S.? Of course, the pound is stronger than the dollar, has always been stronger than the dollar. So in 1980, 100 pounds was about $177. So you're talking a sub-$200 machine, which, I mean, TRS-80 wasn't a sub-200 machine. The Apple II wasn't a sub-200 machine. Even though these were computers that, of course, were more capable than the ZX80, you didn't have any other option in the United States or Europe that allowed you to have your own computer to program on at that kind of price. That is an insanely low price because, of course, that's what Clive wants to do. He wants to bring people interesting technological doodads at as low a price as he can manage. The ZX80 goes on sale. It's introduced at the very end of January 1980, kind of goes on sale before the end of February. By September, it had already sold 20,000 units between kind of February and September. It really had no competition on the market. It was filling a niche because people that were interested in computers now had something that they could buy and play around with. He also did some sales, a small number of sales in the U.S., He went to the Consumer Electronics Show and showed it off in Las Vegas. On his way back, he went through Boston, met an individual named Nigel Searle, who became very important in Sinclair as a manager. Through Searle, they did it by mail order in the U.S. as well. I don't think it sold very much in the U.S., but it had a little bit of an international presence of all things. In total, it sold about 50,000 units, which was Pretty darn good, quite frankly, for a product of that type in the United Kingdom, which is a smaller market and only available by mail order. You couldn't go into a retailer, really, and and just pick one up. That's pretty good. In the meantime, the BBC, as we have talked about several times before, is getting ready to do a major push on computers in conjunction with the British school system and in furtherance of Margaret Thatcher's goal to make technology a core part of her plan for a new Britain, technological literacy being a part of her plan for the new British person. We sort of covered this in our previous episode, specifically the British computer market hardware and the British computer market software. I'll, of course, throw those into the show notes for reference. If you have listened to those episodes, this is a really deep dive into the, obviously, Sir Clive section of that. But if you want to have a broader perspective as to what's going on, 
go review those episodes and get an idea of what the scene is going on here in Britain when Clive is bringing in the ZX-80, the ZX-81, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Just to summarize a little bit of it for context, the BBC has decided that they are going to run a television program, a special, maybe one episode, maybe multiple episodes. At this point, they're not exactly sure what form it's going to take. But this special is going to feature a computer, and then that computer is also going to be the computer of the British school system. They are going to use a computer that ironically actually started at Sinclair Radionics while Sir Clive Sinclair was still there. Again, it wasn't something he was really focused on. It was kind of inspired by the Apple II, kind of trying to offer something a little cheaper than that. It was called the New Brain, being worked on by an engineer named Mike Wakefield. It was kind of never coming together, and Clive Sinclair realized that it was never going to hit the price point he wanted, which was more around 100 pounds. He really didn't have anything to do with that, and so he turned his attention to what Science of Cambridge was doing at the same time and didn't pay any more mind to the new brain. The new brain stayed with Sinclair Radionics when the company was broken up by the National Enterprise Board. They saw some merit in this project because it would be a homegrown British microcomputer. They actually transferred it to another laboratory that they owned called Newbury Laboratories. So this was kind of an incestuous government thing going on. The BBC, which we have to remember, unlike in America, you know, this is the British Broadcasting Corporation. It is owned by the government. The BBC is going to use a computer that's being made by another government organization, whether that computer is any good, whether that computer is practical, whether that computer makes any kind of sense at all. The design is just not coming together, so it really didn't make sense to just award this contract to Newbury. Clive Sinclair learns about this. He's still got contacts around, and he writes in December 1980 a absolutely incensed letter saying that this is unfair, this is rigged, this is a government conspiracy. You really need to open this up and let the real computer people take a shot at this. At about the same time, Chris Curry is doing the same thing on the Acorn side for the same reasons. So the BBC decides to back up and say, well, okay, fine, we'll open the bid up to other people, but we have to have a decision by January because this is already in process, so you have a couple of weeks to throw something together, is basically all they had. Sinclair does not win the contract. This story is far more important to the history of Acorn Computers than it is to the story of Sinclair Research, which by this time is about to be renamed Sinclair Research. I believe it's renamed in early 81. It's still a watershed moment, though, for Sir Clive personally, because losing that contract and losing it to his arch-rival, who is fast becoming his arch-rival, is a very painful experience, obviously. Don't know exactly why. You know, they liked the design better of the Acorn computer, obviously. There were also some other things. They were really concerned with some of Sinclair's keyboard designs. He promised them that he'd give them more of a movable-type keyboard, touch-typing keyboard for their project, because that's what they were specifying. But I think they were a little bit concerned that he wouldn't really be able to do that. One of the conditions was they had to use Microsoft Basic. Sir Clive did not want to abandon his own pre-existing Sinclair Basic. I think that created a point of tension. 
Plus, he was doing his old typical Sir Clive thing and being like, look at what I can provide you for this cheap price. And the BBC and the government being the BBC and the government were okay with going with something a little more expensive if it were also a little more capable. I do think that losing this competition, what turned into a competition, is part of what spurred him to continue on the line of these microcomputers because he was already working on his next computer when this competition occurred, his next computer being the ZX81, which was named for the same reason. It was coming out the very next year, and so it's coming out in 1981, so it's the ZX81. I don't know that he would have necessarily continued on beyond that to continue to be fixated on these educational computers as much as he was if he wasn't being egged on by kind of proving to the world that the BBC and the national school system had made the wrong choice in backing Acorn over him. However, in the meantime, he did have another computer to get out. That computer, as I very briefly indicated, was the ZX81. There were two goals that he really had with the ZX81. He did want to make something that was improved over the ZX80. If you're going to bring out something else, obviously you want to make it better. I think the main impetus even over that is he wanted to finally break that 100-pound barrier. He really wanted to release a computer that was sub-100 pounds, which is just kind of incredible to think about. The way he was able to do that on the ZX81, or rather the way Jim Westwood was able to do that, because we have to remember Clive Sinclair is not designing these computers and really doesn't take any interest in their design either, for the most part. He's content to let his engineers do whatever on the computer stuff so long as they meet his price points. The one thing he does do, and the one thing that he does should get credit for on the ZX81, is he does insist that Westwood work with Ferranti, which is a major British defense contractor and computer company. They are actually the company that put out the very first commercial computer probably anywhere in the world back in the 1950s, the Ferranti Mark I. Obviously, that's a mainframe. They just beat Univac, the American company, to market with their first commercial computers. Ferranti's been in the computer business a long time. They've been in the chip business before that. It's a company that goes back to the 19th century, major defense contractor. Clive knows that they're pretty strong in circuits, that they're probably one of the stronger circuit companies in Britain. And remember from last episode that even though Clive doesn't care about this computer stuff, circuits and the design of circuits have always been something that has been near and dear to his heart. So he insists that they work with Ferranti on this product. That allows them to use a rather revolutionary design from Ferranti, which was called an Uncommitted Logic Array or ULA. Generally speaking, in the electronics business, if you want to create a custom chip specifically for your product, whether that product be a pacemaker or a calculator or a computer, you have to sit down with a bunch of chip designers, tell them what you want the chip to do. They go out there with their big, big sheets of paper and their ruby length, because this is before CAD design is widespread, 
they draw out all of these traces and all of these lines and all of these transistors and everything else on this big sheet of paper. Then they use RubyLynth to cut out all the traces and make sure that they haven't screwed anything up and they have to correct and correct and correct because it's all being done by hand. And so, you know, even if you're off by a millimeter, you have to erase and try and start again. It's a very time-consuming process. It's a very expensive process. It's a very manpower-intensive process. Of course, people do it because that's what people have to do. For someone like Live Sinclair that is trying to keep costs down, you can't just go out and contract with a custom chip. What the uncommitted logic array is, is that it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a chip that already has all of the logic on it, but the gates themselves have not been constructed yet, have not been connected yet. All you have to do is look at the full array of logic that is available on this chip. Tell Ferranti how you want them to connect everything on that chip for the functionality you need. They can basically create you a custom chip out of their generic chip without having to design something completely from scratch. Am I explaining this in a way that makes sense to you? Yes, you are making perfect sense to me. It reminds me of the field programmable gate array, which is used to create a custom chip. It's most prominently used in my mind to create a very perfect replication of how the NES works by the company Analog with the Analog NT Mini. Absolutely. They did a lot of research with that in order to try and really recreate the NES in all of its quirks and all of its things and all the little weirdnesses that it does with a chip. Not just emulation, but a perfect hardware level recreation where you don't have that lag going on or any kind of unfaithful reproduction because you don't have the hardware there. It is there. It's programmed in. So this sounds like an earlier version of this kind of chip where, hey, yeah, I want to do a custom chip instead of me having that chip be a software-defined thing where I just program that chip. This is an earlier instance where I have this company, quote-unquote, solder the little gates in there or drop them in place or whatever it is they do. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, they can service a lot of different clients and a lot of different needs in a custom manner, but without all the time and expense of a custom chip. What this allows them to do in the ZX81 is I told you that the ZX80 had 21 chips in it. Well, thanks to this ULAW, this ULA, they are able to get those 21 chips down to just three. Well, that's quite the savings right there. Right. You still have the Z80 processor. You still have the one kilobyte of RAM. You still have the four kilobytes of ROM. That all hasn't changed. Most of the rest of those chips that were in there have been replaced by the ULA. Because of that, they were able to offer the ZX81 for 70 pounds assembled, 50 pounds as a kit. They absolutely crashed through that 100-pound barrier. They were also able to eliminate the screen flicker problem. Even though it still has very limited memory, they were able to do some other tricks with the way they had everything set up so that you didn't have the noticeable screen shutting off every time you typed something in. So that was a, a nice little added bonus. The ZX81 came out in March of 1981. 
It was made available by mail order, but by this time, the whole microcomputer thing is getting to be more and more in the air. People know that the BBC is getting involved and the school system's getting involved. It's clear the computers are something that is going to be becoming bigger in Britain. So he's also able to go to W.H. Smith, which is a stationary chain in the United Kingdom. But they're looking to expand into other areas. Computers and stationery, they're both stuff that you can theoretically type stuff or write stuff on. So there's kind of a vague connection there. And so he actually gets W.H. Smith to start carrying the computer as well. It's actually not just available by mail order and maybe from the very occasional computer shop, of which there are only a handful in Britain at this time. It is now available nationwide in W.H. Smith's. It's cheap. It's educational. That's how it's being pushed as being something educational to learn how to use computers. It's readily available. He sells a lot of these suckers, like a lot, a lot. By January 1982, which is less than a year on the market, he's already sold 300,000 of them. Wow. By the beginning of the next year, he sold 900,000 of them. Overall, it sells well over a million. Which, in that era for home computers, is fantastic, especially outside of the United States. Absolutely. He is able to sell it in Japan. Mitsui, which was an import-export company that handled a lot of British goods, imported it into Japan. He did some mail order in the United States, and then it actually comes out in the United States in an official release in July 1982 as the Timex Sinclair 1000. The reason the Timex name is on there is, once again, just like he did through most of the history of Sinclair Radionics, Sinclair Research does not do its own manufacturing. It contracts with other companies to do its manufacturing. Once the volume started to ramp up some on the computers, once they became very successful, Timex Corporation agreed to be the manufacturer of the computer at its Dundee, Scotland plant. So they're all being made by Timex, and then because they're doing so well in Britain, Timex, which unlike Sinclair has a credible American presence, decides they want to launch it in the United States as well. So it releases in July 1982 in the U.S. at 9995 Because remember, of course, that, as I said, the pound is more valuable than the dollar. They couldn't quite shatter the $100 price barrier in the same way that Clive Sinclair shattered the 100-pound price barrier in Britain, but they were still able to bring it out at essentially $100, which was unbelievable for a price for a computer in the United States. Keeping in mind that the Commodore and the Trash 80 are still way above that. Unfortunately for Sinclair and for Timex, it would not stay above that for long. Obviously, this is not an episode about the U.S. computer industry, but at this point, Jack Trammell is getting into the low-cost computer area. He actually got into that market because of the ZX80 and the ZX81, because Commodore was always in this period much stronger in Europe than it was in the U.S. They had a very successful German subsidiary. In Germany, Commodore was mentioned in the same breath as IBM in terms of being a gold standard for computing. They were also very strong in the United Kingdom. 
the managers in the UK were, of course, aware of all this stuff going on with computers in the UK and at international sales meetings and whatnot, they made Jack Trammell aware of this. So when Jack Trammell learned about these low-cost ZX computers, he was like, we have got to do this as well. That's when Commodore pivoted into the VIC-20. Up to that point, they had been looking at doing something that was kind of an Apple II knockoff that would be more expensive. But now they're pivoting to the VIC-20, which is meant to be cheaper. At first, the VIC-20 is not as cheap as the Timex Sinclair 1000. It's more like 200 bucks because it is a more capable computer. But then Jack Trammell and Commodore and the fine people over at Texas Instruments get into a massive price war, a ruinous price war with each other that, quite frankly, destroys the U.S. home computer market. As a result of that, the VIC-20 eventually does come down to $99. And, of course, it's way more capable than a Timex Sinclair 1000. Even though there was some excitement in the U.S. market when that computer first appeared because of the price, once that price war got going, Timex Sinclair 1000 just kind of went away. I mean, it couldn't compete because its only advantage was price, and the ruinous price war took that away from it. One of these days, we'll cover that price war. We will. We will. It's a fascinating story. (laughs) In Britain, where you didn't have that same problem, where the only competition essentially were imports from Apple or Atari that were way, way, way more expensive and computers from Acorn that were more capable, but also a little pricier. When they had no competition in that very, very low end market, that computer just sold like mad. And they were actually successful in getting it into schools a little bit. The BBC Micro was the computer, the national computer of the school system, and was in the secondary schools. There was an opening to bid for some of the primary school market. So they did get some ZX81s in front of the younger kids in schools. Of course, the ZX81 was a much more attractive computer when little Johnny and little Susie went to school and got all excited about computers and said, we've got to get one of these for the home. And then they look at the price of a BBC microcomputer and working class British family is like, I don't know about that. But then they see the ZX81 sub 100 pounds and that's suddenly more palpable. Even though he lost that competition, he did still get some synergy from that competition just by virtue of the price of the computer. And that's how you end up with a computer that sells somewhere between a million and a million five over its lifetime, despite its limited capabilities. However, he is still smarting about Acorn. He just doesn't understand why anyone would want those over-engineered hunks of junk from his perspective. I'm not saying they were actually over-engineered hunks of junk, but he believes that power for price is the thing, but that if you have to sacrifice one of those two things, you sacrifice power to meet your price. So the Chris Curry method, the Acorn method of making computers, just is a personal kind of affront to him. So they're going to keep going. They're not going to stop at the ZX81. The TV research is starting to pick up steam. Jim Westwood is desperately needed on the TV side because he knows a lot about analog electronics. They're still dealing with a lot of analog stuff in these television sets. Jim Westwood isn't available, but in October 1980, they had hired another engineer, a digital engineer, by the name of Richard Altwasser, who helped out a little bit on the ZX81, but was more of a junior engineer. So now 
it's Richard Altwasser's turn to come forward and create the ultimate Sinclair educational machine, something that once and for all is going to crush those over-engineered hunks of junk coming out of Acorn computers. And it's just going to cover a wide spectrum of everything you would want with a computer. So obviously we need to call this the ZX Spectrum. Right, eventually. But at first they do call it the ZX82. It's codenamed the ZX82 while it's in production, but they quickly realize that they can't call it that. And the reason for this is that this time they are really building a computer that they feel is going to be their be-all and end-all. That doesn't mean that it'll last forever. I mean, Clive and his engineers understand how technology works. Technology improves. But they're not going to do another yearly release. They figure if they call it the ZX82, because they've already done a ZX80 and a ZX81, everyone is going to assume that they're just going to replace it in another year with a ZX83. That is not their intent. So they don't want to get tied into that naming scheme. So instead, they decide to focus on what is going to be the single biggest improvement. There are many improvements over the original two computers. But the single biggest improvement is going to be that this one is going to be full-color graphics. Both the ZX80 and the ZX81 only outputted to a television in black and white. This one is going to be full-color. So they decide that they're going to call it the rainbow to emphasize that color. But then they decide that they don't like that name. And so finally they settle on that famous name that you keep wanting us to get to, that you keep wanting us to go to, Mr. Jeffrey, the ZX Spectrum. Well, it is the cornerstone of whenever you hear ZX, you want to say Spectrum. (laughs) Absolutely. The goal here, again, is to make this computer as cheap as they possibly can. They do realize that they're not going to be able to get it under 100 pounds right away because they do have to up the performance this time. If this is going to be something that they want to compare favorably to the BBC Micro, they can't do 1K of RAM. They can't do no sound. Of course, they have to do full-color graphics. They're still trying to keep it as cheap as possible. So Richard Altwasser actually comes up with a very interesting way of doing the color that also keeps down the price, and it's what he calls a color attribute system. So we've talked about this before in some of our hardware technology episodes. The reason that color graphics are so expensive comes down to memory, because on most computers, there were exceptions in the early days, but on most computers, what you were doing is you have a bit-mapped screen where your entire screen is divided into a series of individual elements called pixels that you can make whatever size you want within limit. Each one of those pixels, just to do black and white graphics, needs one bit of memory because if you turn on that space, that's a one, and that means you've got a point of light there. And if you are not, if you have it turned off, if you have it in zero, then you're not shining a point of light there when you draw the screen, and that's how you create a black and white screen. One bit per pixel. So if you have a screen that is, say, a resolution of 256 by 192, which is the resolution of the ZX Spectrum, which is why I chose those numbers, 
That means just to get black and white graphics, you would need 256 times 192 bits of memory to make that screen. So you need 49,152 bits of memory. Which adds up. A little bit. If you want color, you need an additional bit for every color you want to have. So if you want eight colors, you need eight bits per pixel. So it's 256 times 192 times eight bits of memory. 393,216 bits. So again, that adds up. There are eight bits in a byte. So if you divide that by eight, that gets you the total number of bytes you would need in order to draw that screen. We're back down to 49,152 bytes. Right. So you need over 48K just to draw the screen. We ain't shipping a computer with 48K. Clearly, we can't do the graphics in this manner. So what they do instead is they define the bitmap in black and white only. So the bitmap is only one bit per pixel. Then they give you the ability to define over an 8 by 8 portion of the screen a foreground color and a background color. So rather than making that part of the bitmap, they do it over a much broader area and just make it a very loose definition so it doesn't take all of that screen memory to draw the screen. It essentially has a 15-color palette because what they do is it's seven colors plus black, so that's eight. But then those seven colors that are not black, you can do two different levels of intensity. You can do a brighter and a darker. So that allows you to have a light blue and a dark blue, a light red and a dark red, etc. That essentially gives you 15 colors, though it's from a palette of only eight colors. Maybe the other way around. It's a palette of 15 colors that's drawn from eight colors. That sounds more right. Yes, that is more correct. That allows them to do a full color screen while keeping the memory requirements down. It does, however, lead to that horrible, horrible thing that we've talked about before in our hardware episode of color clash. Since the colors are being defined separate from the bitmap, if different parts of the bitmap get in a situation where only one part of the bitmap can be a certain color and then the two different screen elements kind of get next to each other and create all sorts of errors, you end up with one color overriding the other color and then taking over the color of that object. So you have to be careful with how you define your screen and how you define your objects and how they interact with each other to avoid color attribute clash and colors doing not what you want. It's kind of difficult to deal with and it's something you can never perfectly solve. Lots of Spectrum games suffer from color clash. But I like my hero knight walking around with green pants and a pink shirt. (laughs) Exactly. It also means that most objects in the game are going to be single color. Doing multicolored objects is not really possible. It doesn't really do sprites so much. You know, it's bitmapped. You can't create sprite elements that are multicolored. If you look at Spectrum games, you'll notice that protagonists and enemies and items and everything else all tend to be one solid color. That's why. 
it's very limiting, but it allows them to do color graphics in a machine that only has 16K of RAM at a pretty decent resolution for the time, 256 by 192. That's a pretty impressive trip. I believe they patented it, and it was it was worth patenting. That's pretty cool, actually. He got the idea from Teletext Systems, which used similar attribute systems because since those are text-based and not graphics-based, they didn't have to worry about things like color clash on Teletext machines. So that's the big change that they make. They also add sound. It's just a little beepy sound, but they never had sound in any of the other computers. They did significantly up the memory, both of the RAM and the ROM. They sold it in two configurations. 16K was the smaller, cheaper configuration, and then you could also buy it in 48K. So you had a lot more RAM. They upped the ROM chip to 16K from 4K. Then they redesigned BASIC to be better, to be more efficient. They didn't have to worry about memory so much anymore. So they redesigned their BASIC just to make it work better. Steve Vickers over at Nine Tiles, the same company that made the original BASIC, was the guy who did that. Steve didn't create the original BASIC, but his company did. Finally, they did sort of improve the keyboard. Sort of improved the keyboard. This time they did a chiclet keyboard. A chiclet keyboard is still a membrane keyboard. It's not a mechanical keyboard. You're still depressing a switch in order to do the typing. But instead of having just a solid piece of plastic with little bumps on it where the keys are, it does have individual keys. In order to save money, they are made of a rubber. They are rubber keys. They are terrible. Nobody likes them. Nobody likes chiclet keyboards anyway in general, but this is a particularly awkward chiclet keyboard. It's also a very strange keyboard. I'm sure Jeffrey will be putting some videos in the show notes that show off all aspects of the ZX Spectrum. So you'll see that the keys are very busy, by which I mean there's a lot of text on them. Uh, And that's because since this is a learning machine and the primary purpose of it is to teach programming in BASIC, they actually included shortcuts for certain BASIC commands as functions of the keys. And so you have these little strings of basic commands showing up on that keyboard as well as the standard alphanumeric stuff. You know, different statements like and and... And or begin end. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's a go-to, which of course is a very common basic command. Load, list, poke. All of that's kind of on there. You'll see that. The ZX81 actually had that going on as well for the exact same reason. It's an educational basic programming computer, and so there's basic commands. I don't think that's something that ever really caught on. Obviously, later computers never bothered to do that kind of thing. There you have it. The ZX Spectrum debuts at the Earl's Court Computer Fair on April 23, 1982. It is specifically touted as an educational tool, like I said, that is comparable to the BBC Micro, but at a much cheaper price. So he's being spurred by that rivalry in part to do this. The 16K model is 125 pounds, which is, again, really good for a computer that has color graphics such as they are and 16K of memory. The 48K model retails for 170 pounds. Getting a little pricier now, but 48K of memory is still a decent amount of memory in 1982. In the U.S. by this time, they're starting to move towards 64K computers, but 48K is still considered 
pretty functional in this time period. They have some trouble getting production started at Sinclair. They always have little difficulties like that. But it does enter mass production by June of 1982. It is a sensation. They cannot keep them in stock. Across Britain, people that are eager to own a computer that can actually do something are flocking to it in droves. When rumors of a computer, of a shipment of computers coming in somewhere hit town, people are lining up in the hopes that they'll get one. I mean, it it creates a, a real buyer's frenzy. And we've talked about the conditions for this in some of our other episodes. It really comes down to the fact that the government and the school system and the BBC are pushing computer use more and more. You have high school students and even some primary school students that are becoming exposed to computing and want to be able to do it at home. They want something that they can do something interesting with. The BBC Micro is too expensive. The ZX81 is too limited. The ZX Spectrum even with some of its imperfections like the weird color attribute and the chiclet keyboard, is kind of the perfect combination of power and price. Mom and dad are willing to make that investment, even though it's a fairly significant investment because they are being told that the future is a computer future and their children need to be in on this. It really takes off. I mean, that's really something... and. I know I've emphasized this a couple times, but it's really important to emphasize that's something that sets off the early British computers from the early American computers, is that in America, the home computer was billed as something that, yes, the kid could do their homework on, but then it's also something where mom balances the checkbook and dad does a bit of word processing and then everyone maybe plays a game together, too. So you had people that were willing to buy that, but it wasn't as clearly defined a purpose as in Britain. In Britain, it was all about education. Even though the ZX Spectrum became the premier game machine in this early British 8-bit computer market, it was sold as an educational product. It was sold to consumers that were being conditioned to believe that it was important to train on computers. That's why you get an uptake rate in the United Kingdom of the ZX Spectrum and its competitors that per capita is far greater than in the United States. Obviously, the gross number of sales is smaller because Britain is smaller, but per capita, these guys are in control, and that is why. It's also why the retailers are so keen to get in on this as well. So we talked about how W.H. Smiths got in with the ZX81. Well, by about February 1983, other British high street retailers, which is the generic name for a chain mass market retailer in the United Kingdom, other high street retailers are looking at what W.H. Smiths has done, looking at the way this computer thing is becoming more and more important. They decide that they need to get on it, too, and Sinclair is ready and willing to get in. So in February 1983, they get into a bunch of other significant chains. They get into Boots, which is a a pharmacist that is very prevalent. They get into Curry's, which is one of the premier electronics chains and television sales chains in the United Kingdom. They get into John Menzies, which is a, a news agent, a newspaper and magazine chain. 
They get into Debenhams, which is a department store. They are getting into all sorts of national British chains. They're coming in at a fairly competitive price, and they're coming into a market that really wants these computers. By less than a year after release, mass production began in June. By the time they're getting into these other stores in February 1983, they've sold 200,000 units. Less than a year, despite the price. Then, in May 1983, they are able to do a price cut. For the first time, the 16K model is under 100 pounds. Take my money! Take my money! It's just under. It's like 99, 95 or whatever, but it's just under 100 pounds. And the 48K model drops to 130. At this point, sales reach a rate of 50,000 units a month of this computer. In September 1983, they hit 1 million in sales. Just over a year after release, 1 million in sales. It's a phenomenon. I mean, Apple finally reaches 1 million in sales in 1983 as well. But remember, they had been on the market since 1977. The VIC-20 actually in the United States reached 1 million in sales in 1982. It's the first computer, as far as we know, that ever reached that milestone. In general, computers did not sell a million units in this time period. This was huge. Clive Sinclair was very unhappy that all anyone ever seemed to want to do with it was play games. Play games on a computer? What kind of silliness is that? You know, he never saw the value of that market. He tolerated it because he liked making money. But Sinclair never saw the value of that. It was an educational machine. But of course, as we talked about, and this really isn't an episode about the British computer game scene, so we won't go into huge detail with it here again, If you get a bunch of teenagers a computer that they get to program on themselves at home, what are they going to do? They're going to make games. People like games, and so there's a market for games. So, of course, publishers emerge that want to sell all of this game product that these teenagers are making. There's some people that aren't teenagers as well, but uh, there's the famous bedroom coder movement in the UK. So you very naturally get a game infrastructure. There's not much else that something like a ZX Spectrum is useful for. It's basically only useful for two things, teaching yourself how to program in BASIC and playing games. Those are the two things it gets used for, whether Sir Clive, which he is by now, whether Sir Clive Sinclair likes it or not. Does he get knighted specifically for the ZX Spectrum or something else? I honestly don't know exactly. I'm sure this information exists somewhere. I don't honestly know for certain. I assume the computers had a big part to do with it. I mean, he's been in technology a long time, but obviously the computers have taken off and computers are so important to what's going on in the United Kingdom at that time that that I imagine the, the computers were a deciding factor in it. I admit I don't know exactly. Certainly it was for contributions to science and technology. I think the computers had to be a big part of said contribution to science and technology. So where does Sinclair go from here? The ZX Spectrum 2. <laughs> He's almost got the TV done. He's getting involved now with another great passion of his, electric vehicles. That's right, the Elon Musk of his day. He's been fascinated by electric vehicles since sometime in the 70s, and 
Europe is getting very pollution conscious at this time. So he founds in 1983 Sinclair Vehicles as a subsidiary and also starts getting to work on electric vehicles. The television finally releases in late 1983 as the TV-80. So that's going on as well. So he still needs more money. The logical thing to do would be to do exactly what you said and create a Spectrum 2, create something that's maybe more like the Commodore 64, which is now also starting to penetrate the European market, something that has sprites, something that has better sound, something that can push Spectrum game development further because that's so popular. There's just one problem, Jeffrey. Clive Sinclair isn't all about those games. That's true. We need to have more games. No, we need fewer games. Fewer games. Clive Sinclair is not interested in that. He tolerates it, but he's not interested in it. So instead of doing a Spectrum 2 of some kind, he pivots into a different direction, which is an introductory computer for business. Well, there is a lot of money there. IBM proved that one. He wants to create a computer that is, it's not an educational computer in the same way that the ZX line were educational, but it's educational in the sense that he wants it to be a computer that teaches a person involved in business how to do the business on the computer. So it's going to be a one-stop shop for everything you would need as a business person to get up to speed on using a computer. Kind of like taking on IBM. We're going to make something that's cheaper and more user-friendly than an IBM PC, but is living in that world instead of living in the world that our ZX80, ZX81, ZX Spectrum lived in. So this time it's got to be 16-bit. IBM PC 16-bit. Business computers need to be 16-bit. They need to address more memory. He goes with the 68008 processor from Motorola. So Motorola's flagship 16-bit processor is the 68000. The 68008 has a narrower bus, fewer instructions, so it's a more limited version of the same chip, but it's cheaper. So 16-bit processor, 68008. It's going to have 128K of RAM, so it can really get into those business applications. It is going to have an operating system at this point. It's not just going to have basic resident and memory. It's going to have a real operating system because a business computer needs to hook up to all sorts of fancy peripherals and needs to do memory management, and that's a lot easier to do with an operating system, which they call QDOS. It will still have basic resident in memory as well, and it's going to be an even more souped-up version of basic than the one in the ZX Spectrum. They call it super basic. It's going to have to come with a drive of some kind because the business uses disk drives, but it's not going to come with a disk drive because disk drives are prohibitively expensive. We've talked about this before, but the British market was a cassette-based market way longer than it was in the United States because the economics were very different in Britain and you needed to keep costs down and disk drives back in the day, floppy disk drives, old five-and-a-half-inch floppies were ridiculously expensive back then because the disk controllers were very advanced bits of technology with lots of chips in them and all of this and 
Moore's Law just hadn't worked its magic yet on disk drives. But you couldn't do a cassette drive on a business computer because cassette drives are serial, they're not random access, and they are slow as all get out. Plus, they're unreliable. It's a lot easier to lose your work. It's a lot easier for a tape to get erased than even for a floppy disk to be corrupted. Not that that was super hard either. So what's a guy to do if he can't do a cassette tape and he can't do a floppy disk? He tries to meet in the middle, and he creates something called a microdrive. A microdrive is still a magnetic tape-based media. Tape-based. It's not disk-based. Instead of being a cassette tape where you press play and it spins around and moves from one reel to the other, it's housed in a cartridge. The cartridge can spin this tape really, really fast. It can spin it on a continuous loop rather than starting on one reel and getting all the way to the end of the reel and then you're done. It can be random access because you can spin it, spin it, spin it wherever you need. Because it moves at a higher speed, it's also faster than a regular cassette tape. But it's still more fragile and slower than a real floppy disk. However, it's also much cheaper than a floppy disk. The microdrive actually predates this computer that he's working on. The microdrive was introduced in July 1983, and you could actually get an adapter for the ZX Spectrum that would also allow you to plug a microdrive into the ZX Spectrum. The drive itself was a 50-pound kit. That's essentially half the price of ZX Spectrum, which just shows you how expensive storage media was back then, because that was still cheaper than a floppy disk, and it's still essentially half the price of a 16K ZX Spectrum after the 83 price cut. But then the disks themselves, they're they're not disks, the cartridges themselves, I should say, then sell for about five pounds each. They can hold 85K per cartridge, random access. So it's going to come with a double microdrive with two microdrives. Then they're even, just like the Atom computer that Coleco tried in the U.S., they're going to throw in the basic software included in the price of the computer. A company called Scion, which was a close ally of Sinclair, not owned by them, but they worked together closely, created four programs to be shipped with the computer that would all come on their own microdrive cartridge. A word processor called Quill, a spreadsheet called Abacus, a database called Archive, and a simple graphics program called Easel. Sounds really close to the Microsoft Office product line. Absolutely, and also close to Lotus 123, which was, of course, the killer app for Office software at the time on IBM machines. Except you don't have to buy this separately. It's included with the computer. So all of this for the low, low price of 400 pounds. Obviously, this is an order of magnitude more expensive than our ZX81s and our ZX Spectrums that we've been talking about to this point. But remember, this is for a business machine, a serious business machine. Just by comparison, if you wanted to buy an IBM PC in Britain at this time, you were probably looking at spending 2,000 pounds on that computer. And you didn't even get Lotus 123 with it. So this is a ridiculous saving over that IBM machine. It's also a more limited machine, but it is so much cheaper, 400 versus 2,000. 
It might just scratch that itch enough that you can get whatever you need to get done done, but you don't have to spend the 2000 and overpay for things you're not going to use. Exactly. Especially if you're brand new to computers, you're uncomfortable with computers, and don't even know what you're doing because it's designed for ease of use for, for newcomers. I should also mention it had more of a real keyboard. It did not have the Spectrum's awful rubber keyboard. Did they go and spring for a nice mechanical keyboard? It wasn't quite that, because mechanical keyboards are expensive, but it had much better defined buttons. Again, we'll be showing all this stuff up in the show notes, so you'll be able to see it, but they had nicer buttons with little depressions in the middle of them that you know more resemble a typewriter-style keyboard. You know, Even more pronounced depressions, I think, than... A lot of modern keyboards have today, but, you know, a little like a typewriter, it felt better. It wasn't that weird rubber, even though it was still what it was in terms of not being fully mechanical. It was a lot better. It wasn't a chiclet keyboard. It wasn't awful like uh, the one on the ZX Spectrum. In development, they called it the ZX83. That was the code name. They did hope that they were going to launch in 1983. It turned out that they weren't going to be able to launch in 83. So they ultimately decided to name it the Sinclair QL, with the QL standing for Quantum Leap, because it was a huge leap forward in computing, especially when compared to, say, the ZX Spectrum. They announced that they were going to release it in January 1984. That ended up being overly optimistic. They were not able to start shipping it in quantity until May of 1984. They lost some of their initial enthusiasm. There were They got orders early on, orders that they were not able to fill right away, which drained some enthusiasm. And then it also ended up that, surprise, surprise, the microdrives were not that great. This is actually the exact same thing that happened to the Coleco Atom. Now, the Coleco Atom had other problems as well. It had more problems than the QL did. One of the problems with the Atom is Coleco, as we discussed, tried to do a custom tape-based form of disk media. I mean, they're not even disk media, but I'm just calling it disk media for ease of understanding. That didn't work very well and was very faulty. The microdrive also didn't work very well and was very faulty. When you are getting a computer for the business and you are going to be storing things on your storage media like payroll and projections and forecasts, personnel reports, and whatever else you're storing on there, you kind of can't have that thing be unreliable because that's important stuff. It's one thing if you buy a five-pound game and you accidentally erase your game. It's another thing if payroll is suddenly gone. That can cause issues, especially if you don't have any kind of backup solution. And especially back then, people don't really have a concept of backups. Oh, the computer does the thing, it stores it. Somehow, it magically just stays there forever. So he had been hoping to sell hundreds of thousands of units within the first year. By mid-1985, they had only sold 60,000. That's way below what they needed to sell, way below their projections. They tried to rebound by cutting the price to 200 pounds, literally slashed the price in half in September 85, but it did not really help. Ironically, the price cut did cause some people to buy it as a game machine. (laughs) Not many, 
But that got it into the realm where it was affordable as a game machine. And since the Spectrum had never really been updated, some people were like, well, I guess this can be my next generation game machine now. It was not very good as a game machine. It was not backwards compatible with the ZX Spectrum because, of course, it's a completely different processor from a completely different company. It also wasn't meant to do fast updating scrolling graphics for action games. It was meant to show charts and graphs as the most advanced form of graphical element that was going to be on there. More or less static images. Exactly. So it really wasn't suited to being a game machine. But it got some play as a game machine once it got cheap enough that hobbyists could buy it. It did play host to a couple of impressive games. Probably one of the most impressive ones that appeared on it was a game called The Pawn by the interactive fiction company Magnetic Scrolls. Not to go into too much detail on Magnetic Scrolls, but one of the things that the company prided itself on is that it was taking the Infocom concept of text adventures and interactive fiction but adding a graphical layer on top of that so you had some highly detailed still images of locations to go along with your text adventure. So that was perfectly well-suited for the QL, which was not good at fast-moving graphics, but was pretty decent at still images. So you got a couple of games on it, like the Pawn, that were very interesting, but it really wasn't a game machine. It was a business machine, but it was a business machine that did not take off was not successful in that context. It was basically a failure. Especially considering the amount of money that went into R&D for this thing, so you're not recouping that kind of expenditure there. I imagine they don't even really break even. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's definitely ugly. It's definitely ugly. They kind of are forced to loop back around to games at this point. Sinclair kind of grudgingly accepts that the computer that the people want and the computer that has been successful is that Spectrum computer. They finally, belatedly, make some very small updates to it. In late 1984, they released the Spectrum Plus. The Spectrum Plus isn't much of an upgrade, but what it basically is is it's a Spectrum with a QL keyboard, with a QL case and a QL keyboard. It's a lot nicer than that chiclet keyboard, but it's really otherwise not much of a change. In late 1985, they finally release the Spectrum 128. It was actually funded by a Spanish company, a Spanish software company, because the Spectrum was really super popular in Spain, in addition to being popular in the UK. France had their own kind of computer things going on. They had some unique homegrown models. Germany was always more Commodore country, but Spain really took to the Spectrum And it was really popular, and there was a small cottage industry of software development in Spain. A Spanish company that wanted to get a little more ambitious with the programs they could do on the computer wanted to see a memory upgrade. And they actually agreed to fund development on this because, as we'll see in a moment, Sinclair was really hurting by this time. So in late 1985, there was a Spectrum 128 that came out in Spain. It came out in the UK then in January 1986. It really didn't have a huge impact because the main change was that it had more memory. But there's always the rule of the lowest common denominator. The Spectrum 128 is a less common model than the hundreds of thousands and even perhaps millions of Spectrums that have already been sold in 16K and 48K variants. So you're not going to spend your time creating games that take advantage of that 128K memory because you're limiting your market. 
you're going to keep making games for 16 and 48K. It's not very impactful. But by this time, Sinclair is really hurting. The TV-80, that little miniature TV that came out in 1983, absolute failure. The Sinclair QL business computer, absolute failure. So he's taking two major hits here. And then he releases the C5 electric vehicle. Oh, boy, Jeffrey. Oh, boy. Well, obviously, everyone in Europe is driving the C5 electric vehicle and its successors. Oh, wait. You know, electric cars, electric vehicles, they're a great idea. They're an idea whose time is starting to come. They are a concept whose time could not come in 1985. Because batteries were only so powerful back then. They're not even arguably super powerful now. But they were less powerful back then, especially for the price. I mean, you know, you can make anything more powerful if you throw more money at it. But a decent-sized, decently-priced battery that you use to power a vehicle couldn't do much back in the 1980s. The vehicle had to be very small and compact and lightweight and not powerful. It was basically a tricycle. <laughs> you didn't pedal it, of course. It was electrically powered, but it was basically a tricycle. The last scene of Microman <laughs> is of uh, Sinclair, of course, the actor playing Sinclair, but it's of Clive Sinclair driving along in this little C5. It's a three-wheeled vehicle. It sits very low to the ground, and it's not very fast. Because there's only so much you can do. It's way too far ahead of its time. Whether we put in Micromen or whether we put in footage of an actual real demonstration or whatever Jeffrey digs up for us, we will absolutely put the C5 in the show notes. But it's comical. Nobody is going to ride this thing. It's not going to replace the automobile. But it's not even going to replace a cheap scooter or a cheap moped for somebody that's looking for a single-person economical form of transport. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, kudos to him for wanting to do something to help the planet. But it's an absolutely ridiculous thing. It sells only 17,000 units. He loses 7 million pounds on the product when you add in all the R&D costs and manufacturing costs and everything else. Takes a bath of 7 million pounds. Sinclair is making millions on its computers by this time. That's wiping away everything that they're doing on computers right there. Seven million pounds. Sinclair Vehicles does then close. So that's three failures. Two of them middle-of-the-road failures, and one of them an absolutely disastrous failure. The company is hemorrhaging money. They need to restructure. They need new investment. Quite frankly, the C5, it makes Sir Clive Sinclair, for the moment, a laughingstock. So that's a cruel thing to say, but in this moment, he is a laughingstock. There is not a bank in all of Britain that is going to lend fifteen to 20,000 pounds to Sinclair Research so that they can recapitalize and restructure and get out from under these ill-advised ventures that they did. There is no way. He is going to have to 
probably sell the company in order to do anything. In June 1985, Robert Maxwell of Pergamon Press, very powerful media mogul. We met him in the Tetris story because him and his company, Mirasoft, plays a big role in the Tetris story. He announces that he's going to take over Sinclair Research in June of 1985. But then suddenly in August, the deal is called off. Don't know the details of that, but, you know, obviously somebody blinked. Either Sinclair decided that Robert Maxwell was someone who he would never want to be his boss, or Robert Maxwell got a better look at the financial situation and said, there's no way I could ever turn this around. Either one is plausible. It could have even been both of them. In August, the deal is canceled. Sinclair Research is finally able to save itself on April 7th, 1986, by selling the computer business to its rival, Amstrad. Amstrad is not a company we've mentioned before. It was founded by an individual named Alan Sugar, who by this time is also a Sir, and is Sir Alan Sugar, later on does... Clive Sinclair won better and becomes Lord Sugar. Alan Sugar was an electronics guy that followed a similar path to Sinclair in some of the markets he got into. He got into stereos in the 60s, got really big in hi-fi equipment, then moved on to other electronics areas. He got involved in personal computers. But the difference between Sir Clive and Lord Sugar is that Lord Sugar's primary goal was to provide ordinary, everyday, functional items to people at a reasonable price. Clive Sinclair wanted to provide stuff at a cheap price, but he also wanted to miniaturize the heck out of it and do all sorts of crazy things with technology, which meant that his products were bold, innovative, often striking to look at, but never quite worked out the way the average consumer necessarily wanted it to work out. Lord Sugar does not care if his product is stodgy, boring, middle of the road, not cutting edge at all, a little bulkier. As long as it's a good price and it works, he is going to sell it to the people. Well, you know, he's a lord today and Clive's just a knight, so we can see which one had more success in the long term. Lord Sugar has a line of computers as well. The Spectrum line of computers is definitely his biggest domestic competitor. There's Commodore and there's other stuff, but in terms of domestic competitors, it's the Spectrum. Alan Sugar agrees in 1986 to buy the computer business from Sinclair Research. He takes over the entire Spectrum line and all of that. That provides enough money for Sinclair to get himself kind of bailed out. Sinclair Research still exists today, but they do little research projects here and there. They're not a hobbyist company. They're not a mass market electronics company. All of that big, bold stuff that Sir Clive used to do back in the day, he no longer does. They work on smaller, more sustainable, more R&D-related kind of projects, and they get by. Not really going to go into the later history of the company, only because it, it doesn't have anything to do with video game history at all. But just to say that Sinclair Research does actually still exist today, and it's a much more modest and less ambitious company, but it made it. Amstrad released a couple of updated models of the Spectrum to keep that product going. They keep producing it until April of 1992 is when the last Spectrum finally exits production. By then, I mean, it had long since stopped being a premier machine. It wasn't like a brilliant seller anymore by 1982, but they keep it going all the way to 1992 before they discontinue it. But at that point, it's just a brand of 
Amstrad. It's it's not the company anymore. Don't know exactly how many it's sold, but estimates put sales maybe somewhere in the 5 million range, which is fantastic for a little computer like that. Just the fact that it launched a computer game industry in Britain, it's just so important. There you have it. That is the ups and downs of Live Sinclair and Sinclair Radionics and Sinclair Research and how a guy accidentally created a whole computer game ecosystem without caring about computers or computer games very much at all. That pretty much sums it up in my mind anyway. I don't really have any questions to delve into after that. That just pretty much leaves us with what do we delve into next time, which is obviously not the computer price war. <laughs> no, no. Let's let's step back from home computers again for a bit and let's go touch on the arcade industry again, which we've been kind of neglecting for a while, coin-operated amusements. Let's do one of those things that we only do every so often. Let's do a biographical piece. Ooh, we get to look at a person? Yes, we are going to look at one of the most accomplished and the most important coin-operated video game designers in the history of the United States, one Mr. Eugene Jarvis, responsible for such classics as uh, Defender, Robotron 2084, had a hand in Smash TV, was the main force in revitalizing the Williams Arcade Division in the early 90s, so even though he didn't work on them, he still is owed a debt of gratitude for games like Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam. He remains one of the only people still in coin-operated video games in the United States today, not as a designer, but as the owner and operator of Raw Thrills, which is one of the only companies that still creates coin-operated video games in the United States. A long and fascinating career that is worthy of a deep dive. We don't do personalities very often, but Eugene Jarvis is definitely one worth doing. We will hear the story of Eugene Jarvis next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworld.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworld.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Congratulations for listening to the end.